This has come to the table. Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. These studies are presented every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at our church at 3800 East Pershing Boulevard in Cheyenne, Wyoming. If you'd like to contribute to these studies, you can make a donation at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne-WY-Giving. We're in Philippians chapter 3 tonight. Now last week, we had gotten down through the third paragraph, which begins in verse 7, and we had talked about Paul's credentials and how he presented those credentials to, well, to the Philippians, to the Christians in Philippi, presented all those credentials that people might otherwise boast about and feel proud of and put all of their confidence in. In fact, the phrasing that Paul used in paragraph two up around verse three or so, verse four, he's talking about people having confidence in the flesh and how that really there is no confidence to be had in the flesh. And what he meant by that wasn't just having confidence in your physical body, but confidence in those earthly things that people count so important doctoral degrees and, and credentials and pedigrees and what your heritage is from. We found a, we've seen a real resurgence of that sort of thing in our own society here in America with racial divisions. And, and it's been around for years, I understand, but it hasn't been hardly at all except about the last 20 years or so that you've seen people driving their cars around with the flag hanging from the rearview mirror from the country their parents were born in. You know, it's like they are not even, they're not even from that country themselves, but they counted that as worthy or somehow worthwhile. And so you've seen a real resurgence of that among different ethnic minorities in the country where there's all this confidence that people are placing in their, their, their heritage, what country they came from, or what country their parents or grandparents came from, because they don't have any confidence in their own country for whatever reason. But what Paul does in those two paragraphs, just as a quick review before we move on to, the, to verse 12, Paul dismantles, he dismantles all of that, making it clear that none of that really matters in the eternal view. So a person being black or white, or Latino or Asian, none of that means anything to God. And it has absolutely no bearing on our salvation or our relationship with God. And it was an important distinction for him to make back then because most people, I don't say most people, the Jews still believed that they had the market cornered on that sort of thing. They were the ones that had the contract with God. They were the ones that had the covenant, the temple, the oracles, and all of that stuff. And so they still placed a, they still placed a strong confidence in their racial or their ethnic identity as giving them some sort of tickets where God was concerned. And what Paul was making clear was none of that counts. And he had some of the best credentials around where the Jews were concerned. A Pharisee, a Hebrew, from the tribe of Benjamin, all of these different things, uh, going so far as to persecute the church. Where the law was concerned, he was absolutely blameless as, uh, in so far as his understanding of it was concerned. But in the third paragraph, beginning in verse 7, is where he dismantles it right there. He said, if anybody among you thinks that he's got credentials, I've got better credentials. But then in verse 7 he says, But what things were gain to me, I counted loss for Christ. Those things that so many other people count as being so dear and important and getting them ahead in life, he said, those things I counted as loss. I counted those as an absolute loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, verse 8, I count 
all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. So he counted it as a cost analysis in his mind, and he wasn't too afraid to pay the price. He wasn't afraid at all. It's like, I've got all these things going for me, but in comparison to the kingdom of God, in comparison to having Christ in me, in comparison to having that relationship with God restored that was lost back there in the garden. But he says, what those things that were gained to me, I counted as loss for Christ. He said, I've, I've counted all these things as loss. He says, I've suffered the loss of all things and do count them. And then he tells us what the real value of them was. All these things that the world is constantly chasing after and pursuing and counting as valuable, he says, I count them as dung. Well, we know what dung is. It's poo. It's the stuff that you use to fertilize your yard or your garden or build a fire with in some cultures. Fortunately, we don't have to do that now. We have an abundance of firewood. He said, I count them as worthless as that, that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him. And this is kind of where we, we were near the end of our study last week when we got to this part, so wasn't able to spend a lot of time on it. He tells us the reasons why, here beginning in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. And it's that very last sentence or that very last verse right there, verse 11, that fragment, if by any means. Is there any question as to the worth of Christ in you? As to the worth of the restoration of that, that relationship with God? And this is something that came out in the afternoon Bible study today over in Matthew chapter 9. It's like it was sin that first broke our relationship with God, wasn't it? It was sin that first did, and it did that all the way back at the beginning of this thing. We know the story. We know the account. There we were in the garden. Well, Adam and Eve, it's not exactly us. It's two. There they were in the garden, but they were in a state of innocence and in a state of perfection. There was no fault in them. There was no sin in them. They had been made perfect. The Bible even goes so far as to say that Adam walked with God in the cool of the day. It's not like you and I necessarily even in necessarily in prayer. We have, we have no reason to believe that the scriptures there back in the early chapters of Genesis were anything other than literal. Adam walked with God. He walked with God, it's described it in the cool of the day, but he walked with God in his innocence, in his perfection, in his, in his uh, you could call it his flawlessness. He walked with God, and that's the only way he could walk with God. That's the only way anybody can walk with God, is in a state of innocence and so forth. Well, when they sinned, that was done. That was the very first thing that ended, was that perfect and beautiful fellowship with Almighty God. I mean, just picture it in your imagination. Just pretend you have some imagination tonight and imagine it in your mind, what it was like. 
You know, we've seen lots of artistic representations of what the garden was like and what Adam and Eve looked like, and usually people get hung up on the fact that they were naked and didn't care. So let's look past the nakedness and just focus on the perfection of the entire setting. This was absolute paradise. And, we, and one of the things that comes out actually in the book of Romans is that there really wasn't even any death in the world. And so imagine the most idyllic Disney cartoon scene from your early childhood that you can remember as far as perfection and nature and all of that. That's exactly what was going on there. In fact, it was far better than any artistic representation. But the moment they sinned, really the moment Adam sinned, because there was still some hope. Eve sinned, but she was beguiled. Adam had not yet sinned, and so the whole human race wasn't doomed yet, okay? But then Adam sinned, and that was it. There was no, there, there was no salvaging it at that point. The moment he did, that fellowship was broken. It was, I mean, it was broken. And there wasn't anything that was going to restore that fellowship except Christ. And we read also elsewhere in scriptures how that, you know, because of Christ's death, we actually gain far more in Christ than we ever lost in Adam. It's just we haven't realized it fully yet in, in, our, in our lives. We haven't seen that come to full realization yet. And so while our relationship may be restored, what's the price of that? Or rather, what's the worth of that? What is that worth to a person? To walk with God in fellowship, restored. Now, it may not be quite like Adam, you know, walking bodily with him and God's glory there. We don't really know uh, beyond the scant details that are given us back in the book of Genesis, but what is that worth to a person? Well, let me just make it personal. What's it worth to you? What is fellowship with God worth to you? Is it worth any means? That means any means. Now, some people, it's worth something to them, but it's worth no more than the convenience of their day job. It's worth no more than what they can reasonably think that they can accommodate. They don't really have a concept of, let's just say, sacrifice, okay? Paul viewed it as so valuable that it was worth absolutely everything. It was worth the loss of his reputation. I'm not saying that this comes to all of us, okay? I'm not saying, hey, prepare yourself. This is going to cost you absolutely everything. It might cost you comparatively little compared to the apostle himself, but it's the willingness. It's the willingness that counts. A lot of times, as we recently explored back in Genesis, talking, with, uh, talking about Abraham and, and his son Isaac, and God's command to take his son Isaac up onto the mountain and sacrifice him, offer him up as a sacrifice, well, he didn't really require Abraham to go through with it, but he was checking to see if he was willing. And it was only at the moment that he had the knife in his hand, it was ready to go through with it, that God, that the angel of the Lord spoke up and said, hold on, now I know that Abraham will do whatever I ask him to do. He won't even withhold his only son, his, that thing that was most precious in the world to him. And so it's, it's a recurring theme that we find throughout Scripture. Paul here is explaining my credentials, my professional credentials, my religious credentials, my pedigree, my heritage, what tribe I'm from, the things even that I did as a result of all of those. I count those things as both nothing and, in fact, worth a steaming pile of compost. I count them worth just that. If I may by any means attain 
unto the resurrection of the dead. And that, that all, the phrasing that he uses is interchangeable. It all refers to the same general common salvation, okay? Because the resurrection of the dead is something that is part of the Christian life. Really, it's part of everybody's life, but it's which, which resurrection you're going to be in that matters. There's going to be that first resurrection. That's the one that we're wanting to be in. When the last trumpet sounds, the dead in Christ shall rise. They who are alive and remain on the earth shall be changed in an instant in the twinkling of an eye. Say, so do you believe in the rapture, preacher? You better believe it. It's, you find it all throughout. Well, not all throughout, but you find it mentioned in more than one place in the New Testament. And there are allusions to it in Scripture. And he says that we will be caught up to be together with our Lord, and there we will ever be with our Lord in the air. So that's the one that we're going for. If we die before that day comes, no worries. First of all, to be absent from the body, the Bible says, is to be present with the Lord. So the moment this life is over, we're in the presence of God. But our bodies are in some graveyard somewhere. No big deal. That's why there's not a whole lot of emphasis on, in Christianity about the right kind of funeral to have. Because what does it matter? You're going to be raised again. So what happens if I'm cremated? Doesn't matter. You're going to be raised again. What happens if I'm lost at sea? It doesn't matter. You're going to be raised again. What happens if I'm killed by bears? You know, it could be like my daughter when she was five years old. And she used to just ask this relentless litany of what if questions. And I mean the most ludicrous, unlikely hypotheticals that she could possibly think of. You know, what if an elephant falls out of the sky and smashes into our house? Well, we don't have a house. We'll get another house, and the poor elephant is dead. There's no way he's surviving that impact, you know. It doesn't matter in the eternal scope of things. It's worth it. Well, what if it costs me something? It's worth it. If by any means I may attain unto the resurrection of the dead. And this is the constant weighing in our own minds and hearts about the value of the divine compared to the, the value of the temporal and the earthly. What's it worth? Is it worth the loss of reputation? It was to Paul. Is it worth the loss even possibly of family? It was to Paul. It was worth it to Paul. He was a Pharisee, and it is understood that it was required of Pharisees that they be married men, yet we read nothing about Paul's wife. Not so much as a mention. Now, we don't know. Maybe she died before he became a Christian. That's entirely possible. You know, childbirth alone killed untold <coughs> scores of women in ancient times. You know, all the way up, it, it, it really, in large numbers, up until just the last hundred years or so in our own country, and it still kills scores of women in underdeveloped nations over, around the world. But it's also very possible that in the midst of his newfound faith on the road to Damascus and his entire change of being, his wife was like, nope, I didn't sign up for this. I'm out of here. It happens. It happens. There are men who get saved whose wives abandon them because of that. And there are women who get saved whose husbands abandon them because of it. We don't want it to happen, but if it does, it's worth it. Well, what if it costs me? It doesn't matter. You can fill in the blank. Think right now about that thing in this life, whatever temporal, physical, or, or uh, personal thing, okay, that is worth m the most to you. What is that thing which means the most to you right now? If you lost that for the cause of Christ, it's worth it.
I don't say that lightly. To be what I am has cost me a few things. It doesn't matter what, I'm not gonna go into that. I'm certainly not trying to build anybody, certainly not myself up, okay? It's all tied into this. It's worth it. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. You make it, you die while in Christ, you've got it made. Your place in that first resurrection is insured. You're home free. There's a lot that still transpires in the, you know, it, it, between the death of a person and then, you know, and all the events of the revelation and when all, all sin is ended and, and evil's rule on earth is, is uh, put underneath Christ's heel and there's lots of stuff and it's occurred to me that we really do need to start digging into the revelation as a church. As a general rule, I don't spend a lot of time in it because it's been so sensationalized by a lot of groups and a lot of people, misunderstood, misappropriated, certainly mispracticed and mis misbelieved, if that's even a word. It is now. Um, but we can't just ignore it. And so we're really going to need to start looking into that so that we're on the same sheet of music as far as the order of future events is concerned. I mean, the revelation was given to us for a reason. It's good to know it. You don't kind of want to know what your hope is in God. But when you die, off to God you go. But you're coming back. In that resurrection, when we're all raised up from the dead, you're coming back. And then there's a whole lot that comes after that, okay? But, you know, that's, that's for another study. But something to keep in mind, bear in mind right now. But let's jump into verse 12. Not as though I had already attained. So we're, we're right into Sunday night's message, aren't we, Reverend Ryder? I think you were preaching out of this on Sunday night. Not as though I had already attained. This is what Paul is saying. Either we're already perfect, but I follow after. If that I, might, if that I may apprehend that for which I am also apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Now, this is Paul using a lot of words again. But all of the words have meaning. None of them are wasted. He says, he acknowledges it in verse 12. He's acknowledging, I haven't attained already. And he said, neither were already perfect. So it's his acknowledgement of his own shortcomings already, or, or of his own extant shortcomings at that point in his life. And for the Apostle Paul, who wrote 14, 13 or 14 books of the New Testament, depending on how you count Hebrews, okay? For the Apostle that pioneered churches and pastored and apostled and, and encouraged and wrote these letters that have been preserved down through 2,000 years for us, for him to acknowledge that he himself still had shortcomings, that's some serious humility right there. Because a lot of people, a lot of times, even in the ministry, when people get exalted within themselves by some office or station or responsibility, it gets up in here and it's, you know what I'm talking about? And then you can't fit through the doorway. They got to butter the sides of your head just so you can climb into your own car. It's like, that wasn't this man though. That wasn't him at all. Not as though I had already attained. Either were already perfect, but I follow after. That's the key right there. It's like, I know that I'm not absolutely flawless and have attained unto total and ultimate godly perfection. 
but I follow after it. That's what he was saying here. It's like, I, I know what the mark is and I'm pressing towards it. I'm not making any excuses for any shortcomings or anything like that. I'm not making any allowances for it. It's like, no matter what it costs me, I'm gonna press on. So what if you fail? Well, so what? You know, this is gonna sound just completely tangential, okay, but it, it's not, it ties right into it. I like, I like shooting guns, they're fun. They're interesting, but if I was afraid to ever fire one at the shooting range because, oh my goodness, I might miss my target, and therefore I'll never pull the trigger, well then why bother having a gun, right? Isn't it better to shoot and miss? And by the way, that's actually where we get the word sin. Did you know that? The word sin derives from a Greek word, I think it's hamarkia or something very close to that, which means to miss the mark. It's like a bow and an arrow or a gun, whatever. You're, you're trying to hit a target with something and it veers wide or goes over the top and you don't hit it. Well, better to shoot and miss than to not ever shoot at all because if you shoot and miss, well then, okay, well as long as it didn't kill somebody accidentally, you know, because you don't want that to happen, well then you just adjust your aim and then, well maybe you miss again, but you're closer, weren't you? And then, so then you try again and then bang, you hit it. it well, well, I only hit the upper left corner. It wasn't even, you know, any of the rings. Well, so what? You still hit the sign. So that's better than you were. And then you try again and then you hit it a little closer to the bullseye. And then you try again. Do you understand kind of what we're getting at here? He says, I'm pressing towards the mark. So you might miss your target. You might miss your aspiration. Uh, and so what's the practical application of that? Okay, well, just name the temptation. Okay, name the temptation that you're tempted with, that you've fallen to a dozen times or 50 times or two or three times. You know, it depends on whether it was a big sin or a small sin or, you know, is there even such a thing? Well, maybe. Okay, the, the ultimate end is the same, but. So think about the thing that's constantly tripped you up until you have finally, in your Christian determination, said, Wait a second, I'm a child of the Most High God and it is absolutely his will that I overcome this thing and crucify it and win. Because let me tell you something, that is always the will of God for a person's life, that we overcome and that we win and that we gain victory and keep victory over sin. That's why the Holy Ghost is so important in the life of a believer because he actually empowers that victory. Before the Holy Spirit was given, and before a person receives the Holy Spirit, they don't have that power. So they're going to miss the mark all over the place, you know. But you say in your Christian determination, I'm going to overcome this thing. And so, all right, now you're, now you're all wound up, you're keyed up, and you're determined, and you've prayed, because you, that's what you ought to do. We all ought to do that, is, is take every single shortcoming or problem or care or concern, no matter what it is, we take it to the Lord in prayer. That's Bible. And that's your first victory right there. You do that, you give the devil a black eye. But then the temptation comes. And the first time after your resolution, the temptation comes and you just, ah, you give in to it, right? Let's make it something innocent. Ice cream. <laughs> I love ice cream. It's good stuff, but it's also one of the worst things you could possibly eat. A little bit's not going to kill you, but you know... Let's say that that's your temptation, you know. 
well, let's actually make it something more realistic, but along the same line. So let's say that food, just in general, really is your kryptonite and you're prone to overdoing it. Okay, well, the Bible talks about something called gluttony, right? That's something you almost never, ever, ever hear mentioned in churches anymore. It's just for some reason. It's just nobody ever wants to talk about it. But it's a very real problem. In America, we eat ourselves to death. We really do. Diabetes is like epidemic in our country and, uh, and all kinds of problems that, that, that are related to um, not practicing restraint in the area of, of, of eating and just taking in food. So say you're, you're, you've been brought to the conscious knowledge of that and you've resolved in your heart, you know what, I'm going to overcome that. I'm going to get a grip on my appetite. But, you know, then you get that flyer in the mail from the, the, the place down the road that's having the all-you-can-eat grand opening buffet Sunday right after church and you slept in on Sunday so you didn't have time for breakfast before you raced out the door to church and then your stomach is growling like mad all through the service and, and finally the preacher shuts up and they and because and, you're just wanting him to be done because you want to get some food and then down the road you are and you're at that buffet and you just pile it on. All right, well, you missed the mark, right? And by piling on, it's like you eat yourself sick. And, and you're sitting in your car, like you haven't even gotten home yet, and you're sitting in your car going, Ugh. Like that dog in that old cartoon. This time I didn't forget the gravy. Some of you remember that, some of you don't. I'm old. All right, well then what do you do? Do you just throw away the effort to even try again? Or do you resolve to try it again? And so and then another temptation comes your way. But then Thanksgiving's coming around. And it's a great big family get together. And there's just tons of food and all of it just smells wonderful. And so you catch yourself, but you still overdo it a bit. And so you feel condemned in yourself. Maybe you were, maybe you're not, but you feel condemned. Well, what do you do? Try again. And you can fill in that blank with any temptation whatsoever, whether it's lying, whether it's something of the flesh, whether it's, you know, just uh, anger issues, temperament problems, language issues, something like that. And if you know what I mean by language, there's a lot of sins that can proceed from out of the mouth, okay? But whatever it is, when the Christian is first trying to get a grip on it, it's like, you may nail it the first time and praise God because you certainly can, but if you don't and if you miss, don't quit. Don't do like Coyote did every single Bugs Bunny Roadrunner cartoon there ever was, and he tried one thing to catch this Roadrunner, and it failed, and that's like he never tried that again. It's like that guy was a professional quitter. Christians don't quit. We don't. We have, we have embraced the same attitude that Paul, the apostle said here. He said, brethren, I count my, not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do. And then he lists the condition of it. And then he tells us what the one thing is. Okay, this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind. Okay, so that's all the failures. That's all the missed marks. That's all the failed attempts. That's all the blunders of the past because you can't go back and fix that, right? We preach about that all the time here. You can't go back and change the past or fix the past. It's past and nobody's got a time machine. If you do, let me know because I want to borrow that thing. 
And you'll be an instant billionaire because I guarantee you people will be using it all the time. But he says, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. So he's talking, he's dealing with both the past and the future. And then he deals with the present. I press toward the mark. Forgetting those things that are behind me and reaching forth unto those things that are before, I press towards the mark. I press towards the mark. Well, what's the one thing that he does? It sounds like three things that he's doing. Yeah, but he's rolled it up into one. Okay? In order to press toward the mark, you have to ditch your past. You have to ditch the sins of your past, the embarrassment and the shame that might be buried in your past. You have to ditch the achievements of your past. It's not always the bad things, but sometimes you have to get past even the good things from your past because we lazy humans tend to rest upon our laurels, don't we? We attain to a certain level and then we're just like, okay, hit cruise control and I want to coast through the rest of life. But we can't do that either. So to press toward the mark, you have to put your past behind you. You learn your lessons from it. You keep those lessons. But the shame and the guilt and the destruction and the condemnation and all of that that came along with it, you leave it behind. If you have believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, your past is no longer relevant. And nobody even has a right to bring it up to you anymore, not even family. They don't. They may not understand that, and they'll try to bring it up. But before God, they don't really have that right anymore because your past has been forgiven and it has been written off. It has been atoned for. It is done. And then, okay, so the past is behind you, but now you've got to reach forth because we don't just... I mean, we live in the present, and that's where everything has to happen, sure, but the present is moving us towards some kind of a future, isn't it? So we forget our past so that it's no longer dragging at our heels or, or dragging at us like sandbags tied to our waist or something like that, like walking around with swimming weights. I don't know if you've ever done that. You know, does it feel real good? You're suddenly a lot heavier, so you, you cut that loose, but then you reach forth to the future. You reach forth unto those things that are before. Okay, well then, what are those things that are before us as believers? My goodness. Where do we begin? You know, we can, we can reach for the obvious, the, lo the low-hanging fruit. Okay, well, there's heaven. There's the kingdom of God that's before us. Okay, all right, yes. There's eternal life that's before us. Okay, yes. But all those are at the end of our life, Right? What if you need something a bit more immediate that you can grab onto? Okay, well, let's talk about those because it's easy to just to obsess on the one and forget that God is a God of the here and now as well. He's not just a God of the future. He's a God of today. Okay, he made today. Well, how about that restored relationship we were just talking about? You know, we were at enmity with God when we were dead in our sins, but now we're no longer dead in our sins. And so how about that restored fellowship? Do, how about reaching forth and grabbing that time of day that you have set aside to talk to God? How about grabbing that time of day, holding that close and valuable in your heart? How about grabbing those blessings that he's already begun to work in your life? Oh, so I haven't realized any of those blessings yet. Well, okay, well, let's get to work, shall we? Because along with the stuff that we mention so often, peace, joy, and the various things that are like the fruits of the Spirit, that he talks about the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, gentleness, and I think, I think I've, I've left out a couple of there, okay, but aside from those, you know, how about the virtues that he's actually begun working in you? 
Because a lot of times as believers, we hear the word blessing and we automatically translate it in our brain into something that's tangible, you know. Oh, $50 bill in the street. Belongs to no one. No way to find out who owns that. That's a blessing. Thank you. You know, I, that actually happened once when it was a $10 bill and I was a kid. But when you're a kid, $10 is a lot of money. So, yeah, check that out. We think of something tangible. Money, uh, some kind of object that we've wanted to buy, have the use of or whatever. But the blessings of God, while they in, can include those things and often do, the ones that are the ones that are really of value, it's not that. It's not those physical things. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That has to be us. It has to be every one of us. We have got to have that same attitude that Paul had. No matter the cost, no matter what price might be attached to it, okay? And, and when I say that, right, I, I, I'm very careful not to, to, to create the impression that we're in any way talking, like, uh, talking about salvation by works, okay? That's not what we're talking about. Salvation is the gift of God. But man, it's going to cost you some things to keep that gift, isn't it? It is. It's going to cost you pride. It's going to cost you some, if not all, of your own priorities. It depends on what God wants you individually to do in your life. Don't be afraid of that cost. We've talked about that over and over again. There's a cost associated with living for God and being a disciple of the Lord Jesus. That's fine. It's worth it. Paul said, if by any means. And he says, I press toward the mark of the high calling. So however many times you've stumbled reaching for that mark, get up again. However many times you've shot for the mark and missed, well, grab another arrow. Put another bullet in the gun. Try again. Try again. Try again. Is the devil's gonna, the devil, here's something he's good at, not to give him any praise, okay, but just so that we're on guard against his tactics. He's good at being right there at your ear in a moment's notice, the moment that something goes wrong in your life or the moment that you slip up somewhere in your life. He's there in a moment's notice to get all over your case when you fail. And he never has encouraging words. He never, the, the, the devil never sidles up to you or sits next to you in your car and says, well, you gave that a good effort, didn't you? Yeah, boy, man, I tell you what, if you tried that again, you'd, I'm sure you'd nail it. You just try one more time, you'd nail it. You know what? You just, you set your heart towards God and you set your mind like a flint. And the next time I send this temptation your way, I'm sure you're going to overcome it. It's like he never says that. It's like the doctor, <laughs> it's a joke I heard years ago, you know. When you go to the doctor and they take x-rays, you know, and then they, it's like, it's never good, right? They never say something like, all right, we took an x-ray of your lower GI and, and we found season tickets to the Yankees. You know, it's never that. <laughs> well, he's, he's never going to encourage you. But God will. And your brothers and sisters in Christ will. Most of the time. Sometimes it may not be an encouragement if they're in the midst of their own battle, but, you know, they're not going to try to, you know, push you further down into the mud, you know. Your brothers and sisters will encourage you. The Word will encourage you. God will always encourage you. And 
you can even encourage yourself. David did it. David faced some very serious stuff in his time, especially in his uh, in that space of time between when he was anointed by Samuel to be king and Saul finally got around to dying. He went through a lot. I mean, stuff that imperiled his life. He was in hiding. He had to, he had to pretend he was a madman uh, in order to avoid problems from, uh, from certain enemies. And he was on the run for his life. And it was, it was really quite harrowing. Now to go back to 1 Samuel and read a lot of that and some of the history of David when he was still a shepherd and the things that were going on then. But one of the things that he said in the Psalms was that he encouraged himself in the Lord. Did you know that you, in your walk with God, in your relationship with God, you can get to that place where you can even walk in the light of your own fire? Because the fire comes from him. It burns inside of you. So let's bring it to a close tonight with this, okay? The core message, or the core lesson from this paragraph here that begins in verse 12, ends in verse 14, is that, all right, so you haven't attained yet unto absolute godly perfection to where temptations never even vex you, let alone never give in to them, okay? You know, so, so you haven't reached that point yet, but are you trying? Because you've got to remember, it's not your works that saved you to begin with. It's not your works that are going to save you in the end. It's the grace of God that saved you. And with your heart and your mind and your whole being oriented towards God and the kingdom, you just keep shooting, keep swinging. There's lots of metaphors in the Bible about this, several metaphors in the Bible about that sort of thing. Paul uses sports metaphors, talks about racing and talks about running a race and talks about fighting and not beating the air and all of that. You keep trying. You keep trying. So, well, I thought the Bible said that it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. Yes. And when you realize that in the way you actually do things, then certain lights start to come on in your understanding and you realize, wait a second, am I trying too hard? Well, sometimes that can happen in the believer's life also. Why not just let the spirit of God work in you? And you'll start hitting a lot more marks. And then there'll be fewer temptations to resist because there'll be fewer things that even tempt because he changes you constantly and renews you from the inside out. Thank you for listening to Come to the Table, Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. Included in these presentations are red-letter studies on the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, historical studies on the Old Testament, topical studies on biblical doctrines, and practical studies on Christian life. If you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY giving.